So I thought I'd talk tonight about um, a way that, um, sort of about the inquiry aspect of the path and how we ask questions throughout our practice. In fact, we're often guided by questions. And this is um, partly uh, to set you guys up because you're going to help me with the Dharma talk later. So just a little advanced warning. Um, so question and answer format is very fundamental in, um, in Buddhist learning. The Buddha was often giving his teachings because people came and asked him questions. And he took people's questions very seriously. You know, he, he understood that when people are suffering, um, whether or not they're framing it that way, but when they're trying to figure out how to do their life, they tend to come up with questions about that. You know, that's one of the standard things that happens when we feel like something isn't right. We have a question like, who's going to know something about this? <laughs> Who can I go ask about this? And so he understood that was part of what people were doing. So do the particulars of a question matter? Yes, actually, they really do. Um, this is from the monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu, or Tanjef, who has done a lot of thinking about questions that turned out to be important in his practice, that he researched the teachings in terms of how people were asking questions. So I thought this was an interesting summary that he put together about the importance of questions. There's no such thing as a totally idle question. Every question, even the most casual, carries an intention, the desire for an answer to fit a certain purpose. You might think of a question as a mold for a tool. The emptiness of the mold indicates the desired but missing knowledge. The shape of the mold indicates the use to which the knowledge will be put. Most people, when looking at a question, focus on the emptiness of the mold. Like, what is it that you're going to find out? But the karma, or the power of the question, lies in its shape. If you ask, where did the universe come from, the answer can't be jump. Any acceptable answer to the question has to address the ideas about existence, causality, sources implicit in the terms universe, come from, and where. So he takes every, every word in there is important. And whatever stance the answer takes with regard to those ideas, it has to fit into the mold provided by the question. So even if it were to state the answer to where did the universe come from, even if that were to state that there is no universe or that the universe didn't come from anywhere, the very act of giving an answer would affirm that the mold shapes a useful tool, an idea important enough to merit talking about and taking a stance. So I don't want to get really hypothetical, but all he's, all he's saying is that how you ask the question really matters. And if somebody engages the question, um, they're kind of inherently affirming that the, que that the, the question was framed in a good way. There's a, um, 
Have you heard the term a well-posed question or an ill-posed question? Yeah. So if you, you can ask something in a way that, the very way that it's being asked, uh, it makes it hard to answer <laughs> truthfully. It's a hard question. And so uh, a lot of our questions about suffering turn out to be like that because we don't really understand why we're suffering. We don't really understand what it is that we're seeking. We might have things that we say we're seeking, but if we were to actually get those things, we might not actually be happy because we might not be so clear on all that. So um, so the Buddha really thought about, gosh, how, you know, how can I respond to people when they come with these questions that are a little bit ill-posed? And so there are several places in the sutta where he defines four types of questions, just so we would be aware, I guess. And he defines them in terms of the responses. So there are those that deserve a categorical answer. They're straightforward. You just give the answer. There are those that require some clarification before you can give the answer. Like you might have to say, okay, well, I can answer that as long as I tell you what the term that you've used actually means. And then I can answer that. And then there are those where he gave a counter question. You know, he would say, well, let me ask you something else first before I answer your question. And then there are those questions that are to be set aside. That's the fourth type. So this is interesting, right, in that some questions, the Buddha said, are not, they just shouldn't be answered, which is interesting. Um, we might have thought ahead of time that uh, he would accept anything, but he didn't. And he responded in general with his own background goal in mind, which was suffering and the end of suffering. He said again and again, that's what I teach. And so he didn't, um, he didn't respond to every question, and he also didn't share everything that he knew. There's a wonderful analogy where he says to the monks, which is more numerous? The, he picks up a handful of leaves, and he says, which is more numerous, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And the monks, of course, say, well, the leaves in the forest are much greater than those in your hand. And he says, well, just so. Uh, the things that I have known through direct knowledge, through my awakening, are like the leaves in the forest, but what I teach are like the leaves in my hand. So he narrowed everything that he knew down into what's going to be really relevant for ending suffering. You know, that's, that's what I want to talk about. That's the aim. So this is relevant for us because... When sometimes when we read the texts, we might be a little bit irritated with them. Or we, you know, somebody reads a quote and we say, well, that doesn't really sound like it fits my life. Or that, um, you know, that sounds a little funny. Maybe it's some ancient Indian cultural thing. But it might be. It might be. That might be true. Um, or we might consider this, um, what the Buddha said about how he teaches how he decides how to respond to questions and how he decides to share what he has seen. He said he, he really wants to share what's relevant and what's important and what's going to lead only to the, only what's going to lead to the end of suffering. And so we might ask, well, how is it that what this says leads to the end of suffering and how, how might it be that what I wanted it to say uh, actually is, is pointing in some slightly different direction? 
So I'm not going to go in great detail through um, all four of those, but I thought I would just talk, give a couple examples to make it more concrete. A couple examples of the first one and the last one. So the questions that are really straightforward, you know, which ones did the Buddha think were right, uh, easily answerable, and which ones did he say should not be answered at all? The other two are a little more complex. So that's what we're going to look at. And then um, you're going to get a chance to consider your own questions in light of some of what we've talked about. So the questions that were considered straightforward and should just be answered immediately, as you might guess, based on what I've framed, they're the ones that deal directly with the end of suffering. They're the ones where the Buddha says, great, they got the right mold and the right shape, and I can just fill it with what, you know, with what I want to say. And so those go into two categories, questions of what is skillful and what is unskillful. So a question that says, you know, where you go and you say to a teacher, what if I do it will lead to my long-term benefit? What if I do it will lead to harm? Or is this particular thing that I do helpful or harmful? And when might that be true? Those are great questions. Hopefully those are if they're framed pretty well, the teacher would just respond and say, oh, great, you know, this person's concerned with benefit and harm. That's very important. That leads directly to the, to the goal. So that's easy to answer. Um, by the way, that means skillful or skillful with regard to harm and suffering or ending it, that is. Not skillful or unskillful with regard to how can I attract a good mate? How can I, you know, look really good? Things like that. So it has to have the correct aim also. And then the second category of really straightforward questions are ones that pertain to the Four Noble Truths. So those are very similar. So questions of what is the, what is the origin of suffering? How does one end suffering? Um, what elements of the path are going to be relevant for me to tackle this particular problem? Those kinds of questions are, are pointed uh, in the right direction already. They basically, they relate to wise view. Okay, and then, what about the questions that are meant to be put aside? Uh, these are interesting too, right? Ones that the Buddha says we shouldn't even ask those questions. I mean, we can ask them, but they're, they're not the right questions. So these um, are questions that assume and are blind to that assumption uh, the existence of a self, essentially, when also um, have definite time assumptions, the existence of a real past, future, and present. It's interesting um, criteria. So basically questions of me and not me, existence and non-existence, and placed in the time frame of past, future, and present. Uh, another analysis says that these are questions that have as their basis I am the thinker. So it's all about me, and I'm asking this, and there's no way to answer the question that doesn't affirm that there's a self there. So he gives, luckily he doesn't just give us something abstract. The Buddha has um, once gave a list of a whole bunch of questions that he thinks are, should be set aside. So he says, this is how one attends inappropriately, which is the same thing. You might check if you've ever asked any of these questions. I certainly have. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? 
What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from, and where is it bound? Hmm. That's a lot of what people ask, actually. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, they sound uh, non-specific there because he's trying to make them non-specific. But examples of those types of questions, the famous question, "Who am I?" Um, would be part of this. We'll go with, I think, "What am I?" Um, also, questions like, "Why do I have so much anger?" That would go with something like, "Having been what in the past, you know, what am I becoming?" Something like that, or you know, was it the case that because of, you know, my upbringing in this or that, I ended up incapable of being able to do such and such? So this is about how was I in the past? How is that affecting the present? So these are questions that are just based upon my, they're based upon my life story. And they're questions about how can I get my life story figured out? Um, these are questions that the Buddha said should be set aside because any answer to these questions would affirm assumptions that are not true. And so he would be forced to speak about something that he didn't want to speak about. It wasn't about the end of suffering for somebody. I actually, um, as I pondered on this, I, a memory came to me from way back when I was in graduate school. Uh, this was actually before I started um, practicing Buddhism. And I remember a, so something that struck me at a conference I went to in my field. And it, I was a, in uh, science. And I went to a big science conference that happens every year. And I was listening to the talks there. And somebody raised their hand at the end of somebody's presentation. And they asked a question. Um, it was kind of a, a hot debated topic in science. I don't know if you guys believe that science can be really emotional and hot, but it can. <laughs> and so it was this question that you know, had a lot of um, charge around it. And somebody raised their hand and asked some question that they thought was going to be kind of a brilliant um, you know, poke at this person's presentation. And the presenter said, I thought about it, and you know, I said, oh, well. And then they looked at him and said, your question is not even wrong. And I thought, it's a little bit nasty, actually, but... Um, I was struck by this because what they were saying was, you know, the, the way you've even framed your question, it's an ill-posed question, is what they were saying. So the way you've even framed your question is something that makes it uh, unanswerable. Basically what they were saying is it proves you don't understand what I'm saying because you asked a question that is not even framed correctly. So I don't recommend this um, strategy, but it points a little bit toward uh, what the you know, what the Buddha's talking about in terms of it's, it's got to be correctly posed. So there's, um, there's a sutta that's kind of striking about this. I'll read, it's pretty relatively short, so I'll read it. It's about somebody who comes to ask the Buddha a question, and his response is very interesting. Then the wanderer, Vachagota, went to the Blessed One, and on arrival exchanged courteous greetings with him. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat to one side. 
As he was sitting there, he asked the Blessed One, Now, Venerable Gotama, is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then Vachagota the Wanderer got up from his seat and left. Then, not long after Vachagota the Wanderer had left, Venerable Ananda, who was a monk, said to the Blessed One, the Buddha, Why, Lord, did the Blessed One not answer when asked a question by Vachagota the Wanderer? Right? There was a setup. He came, he exchanged courteous greetings, he sat down respectfully, and he asked a sincere question. And the Buddha just sat there and didn't even answer. So he says, why did you not answer? And the Buddha says, Ananda, if I, being asked by Vajragota the Wanderer, if there is a self, were to answer that there is a self, that would be conforming with those Brahmins and contemplatives who are exponents of eternalism, so the view that there is an eternal, unchanging soul. And if I, being asked by Vajragota if there is no self, were to answer that there is no self, that would be conforming with those Brahmins and contemplatives who are exponents of annihilationism, so the view that death is the annihilation of consciousness. And if I, being asked by the one by this wanderer if there is a self, were to answer that there is a self, would that be in keeping with the arising of knowledge that all phenomena are not self? No, no Lord, says Ananda. And if I were to answer that there is no self, the bewildered Vajagota would become even more bewildered. Does the self I used to have now not exist? So it's interesting, right? He, he basically says there's no way I could have answered that question because he, he just says, is there a self? And then he says, is there no self? If I respond to that, I'm agreeing with the view. I'm agreeing with the universe where there are selves. And so he says, there's no way I can answer that. And so he just didn't respond, which I'm sure confused the wanderer also. So that's, um, that's one of the few cases in the suttas where the Buddha... Um, truly doesn't answer. He just remains completely silent. But it's interesting that he was so um, strongly bound to his own integrity that he uh, upheld that to the point of obviously not having a socially acceptable, whatever, socially conventional interaction with someone. So all of that was really a lot of setup Uh, for you guys. So uh, I would like you to reflect for a moment on what question you have in your practice. What question or questions are you bringing to your practice? It doesn't have to be every question you've ever had, but you know, right now, if you think about why do you meditate or what is it that you're trying to do, what you're trying to learn, what question is that? Maybe you haven't thought about it explicitly as a question. But there's probably one there somehow. So are these questions of what is skillful and unskillful? What will lead toward harm or away from harm? What if I do it will bring benefit to myself and others? What if I do it will reduce suffering? or questions about the Four Noble Truths, 
What is the nature of suffering? What is the nature of the cessation of suffering? What are the elements of the path that will undo karma? Those kinds of questions. Or is it a question more about how was I in the past? How can I avoid being something in the future? How can I be or not be something? And then I thought you guys might help me with the Dharma talk by sharing some of your questions. And um, we can talk about the question itself. And if you have so, if you have sincere questions, I'd be happy to respond. I also wanted to make some room for you guys and not just talk the whole time. And have this also be something of a Q&A evening, since that is, after all, a traditional way to learn. The Buddha didn't give that many Dharma talks. I mean, he did, but not like this. <laughs> Mostly he responded to questions. How does death operate um, in Buddhism? How does death operate? What does um what does what do you mean by operate? This is a question well, that has a I'm clarification. They talk, they talk about this idea of the trend, the um, the deathless. Yeah. Um, there's reincarnation. There's the notion that the decaying body is gross and kind of a tool for teaching. But I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, in, in like a Western tradition, they may say that that a philosopher should be um, considering death as a tool to go inward or to consider reality a certain way. So that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out. And I just thought it would be interesting to hear if you would would explain death and consciousness. Mm. So, um, when you talk about death and consciousness, do you have your own in mind? Um, I think so. I mean, because that's how I experience, uh, well, right. Because then, it, as it, if you consider the, the, the concept of no self, then it becomes you know, who's the, who's asking the question, who's dying? Yeah, um, it's more a sense of, you know, do you understand that, that you're going to die? Right. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I think about it. Um, and I just kind of accept it and realize that it's part of life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so if we really... The contemplation of death, Maranasati, is a very important part of, of the path. And the notion, I and mean, when we really get that uh, we're not exempt from death, it has a profound impact on us, actually, when it's not only a philosophical question. Uh, we may feel a sense of urgency to uh, finish some of the work that we wanted to do during our life. And that doesn't mean finally write that trashy novel that we always wanted to get out. 
Um, but really to, to, to understand what this life is. So one function of death, how death works, <laughs> is that it raises our consciousness to uh, the point of asking spiritual questions. For some people, they need to get what's called a heavenly messenger of their, their own aging or illness or injury or somebody else dying, something that then wakes them up. So there's that. Um, death is considered a great motivator to practice. And the contemplation of death is said to be with great fruit, great benefit, and highly encouraged. As far as the process itself, um, you know, does it just mean the rendering of the body lifeless? What happens then? These questions, I think, are in the realm that the Buddha would be cautious about. Um, but he does include death in one of his uh, most famous and important teachings on the ending of suffering, actually on the cause and the ending of suffering, which is that of conditionality. So this won't be a whole lesson on dependent arising, but his teaching on um, how things interrelate and how suffering ends up, um, ignorance ends up leading to clinging and selfing and then finally birth and death, is critical for understanding how it is that we're creating our own suffering. So death also has a role there. And in that case, his inquiry went something like, um, I see that there is aging, illness, and death in the universe, and these are things that cause great suffering to beings, including me. Uh, what is the cause of that? What is the reason that that happens? And so through that, through pondering that, not really with his cognitive mind, this was more in meditation, he came up with the answer that birth is the cause of death. Birth is the condition for death. When there's birth, there will be death. You, you might say that's very obvious, but at some level, it's actually quite profound also. Um, you know, why are you going to die? Well, because you were born. <laughs> And that's actually something that we then share with all beings. It provides a, a basis for compassion also. But then he said, well, then what's the cause of birth? And he went farther back. And he kept tracing it back um, through the way the mind operates. And he eventually uh, got to the root of the problem, shall we say. And that allowed him to understand much more about how his mind works. Um, identity forms when we're clinging to something. And so, you know, we don't have in our culture the idea that birth is caused by the clinging of um, some other, you know, some leftover consciousness into a mother's womb. But you can think of it within your own lifespan. We take birth as a certain identity, um, as a mother or a daughter or a co-worker or as an angry person or whatever it is that we've grasped onto and decided that we are or a depressed person, or a person who's lousy at math, whatever it is that we think we are, that happened because we grabbed onto something and said, this is how I am. And you go back and say, well, why did that happen? And you know, I'm skipping a few, then there's a definite steps here, but I'm going through the concepts. Uh, it comes down to basically something that we were either trying to get because it was pleasant, or something that we were trying to not have because it was unpleasant. It's really kind of embarrassing that it comes down to that. 
but it's true. For the most part, we've perceived that something, being something or not being something, having something or not having something, it's going to be beneficial or it's going to be detrimental. It's going to be pleasant or unpleasant. Actually, not even beneficial or detrimental, just painful or pleasant. And so then we want the pleasant and we don't want the unpleasant. Uh, how do we get that? Well, because we're sensitive. You know, we have a body and a mind that can, that are subject to all kinds of inputs. We can't control that unpleasant things happen to our body um, and pleasant things too. We can't get all the pleasant things that we want. And so because of that, because we are just our sensitive being, we have this tendency to try to protect ourselves through getting pleasant and getting rid of unpleasant. Well, why did that happen? You know, you can go farther back into the psychological structures of the mind. Um, it's all set up. <laughs> and we just keep falling down that track. And the end point of that is death. Um, but there's a way out of this by not doing each of those steps. You know, the Buddha said, how does there not come to be death? Well, by not being born. <laughs> So you don't have to die if you don't ever declare yourself to be something. If you don't ever, not that you'll never play any roles in your life, of course you will. But if you don't grasp onto them as this is me, this is mine, then it, it's okay when it ends. It's easier said than done. But you can get the concept. You know, if you were really, really attached to your job and then you got fired, that would be really painful. Maybe some of us has experienced that. But if you nonetheless had that job, but you weren't attached to it at all. Not that you didn't care, but that you just, you didn't consider it really important for your identity. If you got fired, it might be inconvenient, but it would be a lot less suffering, right? So this is the basic concept, is not to grasp onto the identity. That's the real issue with death. And if we have no identity, even to the point of not being identified with being this particular being in this time construct in this body, then I don't think I could really die. Even if my body stopped functioning, there would be nothing to die. That's the end of death, the deathless. Does that help answer your question? It does, and I like your answer. I just wonder, uh, if you look at it, we say birth and death and how the creation of all the clinging through, but it seems like there's still something, there's there's the deathless, there's what, what we're aspiring to, the transcendent state. Yeah, he's saying that Nibbana is sometimes called the deathless, the goal of practice. Yeah. The transcendent state, and then my question would be, um, if the whole thing is kind of rooted around this, this concept that there's a transcendent state, and we're beyond everything, and we just believe that, then does that create an object that can be deconstructed? Luckily, the deathless is not an object, and it's not a place, and it's not something that we will be able to experience. You have to not be there. For that experience to happen. So it's off limits for deconstruction. Yes. Okay. It's outside of any of the six sense spheres that we can understand. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind. So it's an absence, but it's a very, very meaningful absence. This is what separates it from 
ideas of uh, oneness or uh, universal consciousness or something like that. There is consciousness. It's called consciousness without feature. But it's different from unifying with the all-powerful, all-encompassing ground of being, something like that. Um, you know, when you start getting into things that it's hard to describe, the words start sounding a little mushy. But um, yeah, we should be clear that the deathless is is not a place, and it's yeah, not any type of normal consciousness. What other questions? Feel free to ask something very pragmatic. Yeah. I'm a little embarrassed to share this, but I actually no. I'm pretty new to meditation. I've been on and on for a year. And every time I sit, it's mostly just like an assault of thoughts and I'm slowly trying to do it more often. It's, so I haven't there hasn't been a lot of room for inquiry because I'm just like trying to sit still. <laughs> and um, get used to that. But actually, today I had what I would consider a pretty unpleasant experience. Um, I experienced a form of rejection, and that has always been a big challenge for me. There's a whole story created around that. And so um, I came here tonight thinking, ooh, maybe I'll tap into those feelings and, you know, feel it and just you know, let it go. And um, as it usually happens when I sit, the thoughts are often so busy that I don't, like I can't, it's hard to kind of separate and look within. Um, but tonight I actually, it was the first night that I think I've, or the first sit where I think I've actually asked myself a mm-hmm. question. And what it just popped up as I was sitting and then thinking the thoughts were coming about the incident earlier. And um, the thought was, um, you felt the fear, can you feel the love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my whole body just relaxed and kind of everything sort of moved out. Yeah. So this is a very visceral, direct example of um, the power of a question when it's well-directed in the moment. I don't have much to add to that. Did you have a question? Or I love that you shared that. It's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Yeah. um, No, it was just, um, I I think maybe I was really into it and that I like the first sit where I've actually yeah. asked myself something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the system responds. It's interesting. I'm glad you had that experience. Yeah. Where do I reside in this body? Hmm. So, have you looked? 
<laughs> I mean, really, you could look, right, inside in meditation. Have you, have you looked around a bit? Uh, yeah. And what have you found? Perception seems to come from outside. That's, that's my experience, is that it feels like perception is looking in and seeing, seeing hearing, feeling. Okay. Perception being the mind, or? Yeah, maybe I'm mind-focused there. Mm. Maybe that's more like thought. It feels like it's coming from outside. It's interesting, this question of um, how the body feels during meditation and how it seems like we're perceiving it. Um, I think any particular perception uh, is probably less important than the understanding that the perception is different at different times and um, may not be what we would think. You know, like there may be times especially when concentration starts uh, happening at the beginning of when we start having it, um, where the body feels like it's completely differently shaped than you would expect. Um, it may feel huge. It may feel tiny. It may feel like your, you know, your awareness is somewhere out here or, you know, maybe somewhere inside. Um, it, all these different uh, ways of perceiving the body start arising. They don't persist, right? As soon as you open your eyes, you're back to something a little bit more recognizable. So um, we have to understand that none of these perceptions is the, the real thing or the right thing. Um, but we can start to question the absolute authority of the standardized perception that we have. I think that's the main value. As far as um, your question, do you recognize it as being uh, part of the second list? Where do I reside in the body? As an assumption that there's an I there. So I can't answer that question. Um, I gave you more than the Buddha would have. I'll also give a little um, anecdote, which I, I kind of like, which is that um, somebody came to the, this is from the Tibetan tradition, somebody came to the Bodhisattva, I think it was Bodhidharma, uh, but it might have been a different one, and said, um, my mind is distressed. Please pacify it. That was his request. Reasonable question for a spiritual teacher. Reasonable request of one. And so the teacher says, show me your mind and I will pacify it. And the questioner says, I've looked for my mind, but I can't find it. And the teacher says, there. See, I've done it. It's four lines, um, but they're very profound, actually. So you might consider those um, when we have questions about where the mind is or other such things.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.